Welcome to A Different Way of Traveling. This is a podcast where we discuss travel for persons with disabilities and special needs in South Africa and beyond with our host, Lois Strachan. Join us as we share inspiring stories of people who travel, exciting accessible travel experiences, and showcase service providers who will accommodate those with special needs. And now, on with the show. Hi there. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of A Different Way of Travelling, a podcast on accessible travel brought to you by Accessible South Africa. Today we're featuring an interview with British Paralympian and professional speaker, Darren Harris, who's had the opportunity to travel quite widely during his life. And Darren shares some great stories with us from his travels. If you like the podcast, I want to encourage you to, if you haven't already done so, to hit the subscribe button to make certain that you don't miss out on any of our future episodes. And while you're about it, we'd really appreciate it if you could help us to reach more people by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much for doing that. It really makes a difference. Right. Let's meet Darren Harris. Today on A Different Way of Travelling, we're chatting to Darren Harris, who lives in the UK. Darren is a fellow professional speaker, and he and I met when we were discussing his possibly coming out to speak in Cape Town a few months ago. That sadly didn't happen because of COVID-19. But Darren has a lot more interesting stories about travel that he's going to share with us today. So Darren, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Lois. It is great to have you with us. Yes, I mean, it would have been great to meet you in person, obviously, out there in, in South Africa. But it's interesting that we're talking about travel where here in the UK, we're all under lockdown. Yeah, us two here in South Africa. I, I, I was planning on kidnapping you from a, a session at the the Professional Speakers Association conference where you were going to be keynoting to kind of drag you aside and say, please, let's do a quick interview now. But Nonetheless, we're able to do this using Zoom, which is great. So, Darren, maybe we can just start off by asking you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit of your story and a little bit about what you do. So, I am a a speaker and I I love helping people stand out from the crowd, I guess, become what I call an industry minority. I have always been a minority. I'm, I'm black, I'm blind and all sorts of other reasons why I'm a minority, but there were never things that I was really passionate about standing out for. That was not how I wanted to be known. Oh, is that blind black bloke just walked in the room? I wanted to be known for something else. I wanted to make a name for myself. And I think it was when I went to the Paralympic Games in Atlanta in 1996, I was there as a spectator. And center stage was this motley crew of misfits. There were stumps, there were wheelies, there were, there were, there were amputees. And, uh, and I suddenly realized that these people were being celebrated not for their disabilities, but for their abilities to, to throw, to run, to swim. And that sparked something in my imagination about perhaps I could be a Paralympian too. Because sport had always been a big part of my life, but I'd kind of followed that traditional route the thing that everybody tells you to do you know you go to university and then you've got to go and do a a corporate job and I suddenly thought well this is what I want to do this is what I really want to do and I started on that journey I didn't know it was going to take me 12 years to get there obviously but (laughs) that's it if there's something that you really want then you're going to stick with it no matter what so I I think in brief really what I I try to do with, with others is is get them to to follow their dreams, not be shouted down by the masses who kind of go, you know, you can't do that. That's not what people like you do. When I was a kid growing up, if you were blind, 
you were going to be a piano tuner or a basket weaver. And, and, and thankfully, the opportunities have increased for people with vision impairments now. But that's only because somebody broke the mold. You know, someone was a trailblazer, a pioneer who said, you know what, that's not what I want to do. I want to do something else. I want to be a, a TV broadcaster. I want to be, you know, a physiotherapist or an author or something else. And there, and there, they they become torchbearers for others because other people then see these other opportunities that other people have done. So I want to inspire people to 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 be those pioneers to to break new ground for all of us. That's a very important message to share, and I, I commend you on on being willing to do that. But I want to dive back into something that you said a little earlier. So tell us about your Paralympian status? So I went to Beijing. That's the Paralympics, the first one. I went to Beijing and London, actually. I think it was Athens where I thought that I would be going to the Paralympic Games. We qualified with football. I was, I began my England debut back in 1996, incredibly. And eight years later, I thought I was going to be competing at the Paralympic Games in Athens. We'd qualified, but... Such is the status of the UK. We have these sort of four home nations, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And so for one year out of the four-year cycle, we kind of come together to compete as Great Britain. And, and you know, in the other years, you know, we kind of consider ourselves, for example, in the Commonwealth Games, those countries compete independently. But in the Olympics and the Paralympics, they compete together. And what happened was that Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland wouldn't sanction us to compete as Great Britain so you know we'd, we'd become a bit of a political football at that time and I was thinking well is this the end of my dream you know am I now not going to ever go to a Paralympic Games because some guys in some ivory tower somewhere say you know what you can't play as Great Britain but I was a black belt in judo so what I decided to do was was give up my job I was working in IT for a, a pretty big company over here in the UK. And uh, I remember the day I handed in my notice and all my colleagues came up to me because usually when you're handing your notice, it's to go to a company which is either going to pay you more money or where there's better prospects. And everyone wanted to know where I was off to. And I said, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to go and do judo and I'm going to train full time and try and make it to the Paralympics. And they go, well, are they paying you for that? And I says, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> and and there was this, this sort of, this baffled, bewildered kind of response, like, you're mad. Why would you do that? Why would you give up a well-paid, secure job to do something for absolutely nothing? Uh, now, I did know that if results went my way, that there was an opportunity to get on lottery funding. But Ultimately, I just wanted to follow my dreams and do what what I enjoyed. Um, I, there was a guy in the office with me who, who'd been there for 30 years, I think. And I remember sort of sitting there chatting to him a few times. And I thought, is this what I'm going to be like in 20 years time? Am I going to get to 50 years old and be looking back over my life thinking, is that, is that all there was? Is that, is that, is this it? And, you know, sort of looking forward to the next part of your life with, with regret. And I just felt it was something I had to do. So yeah, that's what I did. I, I packed in my job. I trained full time. And at no point in those four years did I ever know I would qualify. And, and one of the things, one of the lessons from that, I think for the current crisis is that sometimes we get caught up in the future. We, we, we drift away to the future and we think everything's kind of doom and gloom and we can see people losing their life, people losing their jobs. And that's really, really stressful and creating a lot of anxiety and panic throughout the world. But one of the ways to overcome that is literally to focus on today. And so true. And that's what I did as an athlete. I just tried to get better every single day. And and it's only when you look back, when you've when you've reached where you want to go to, and you think how far you've come, that's when it's like wow, that's how far I've come in that time, and and that's all we can do. There's so much we could be doing today 
to, to make our lives better tomorrow and, and into the future. But it will only ever happen if we, if we do it today. And so I did. I, it kept me really honest, knowing that I had to be the very best I could be to, to qualify for the Games. And I'll never forget the day I actually did qualify. Um, they usually publish the ranking lists and, you know, they, they add up all the points that the different athletes get from tournaments all around the world. Mm-hmm. And they published this, and but I just didn't want to wait for the official ranking. So I was, <laughs> I was there with a spreadsheet and a calculator trying to work out the points. And I was looking up online, you know, who fought who and working out how many points they'd got. And, and I literally ran my own ranking list and, and I thought, I thought, yes, I've got it. I've got enough points. And then when it officially, the news officially came through, uh, I was ecstatic. I mean, actually going to the games wasn't, you know, wasn't the sort of epiphany that I thought it might be. I mean, it is now because I can look back on it in reflection. But what happens is that, you know, my goal was just to get to the Paralympics. And then when you get to the Paralympics, you your goal is then to, to go and win a medal. <laughs> so, you know, the kind of the goalposts continue to move you find throughout your life and yeah I remember drawing the the Cuban in the first round he was world champion at the time and I'd never beaten him before then and I've never beaten him since and you know I lost to him that day and I remember coming off coming off the judo mat walking through the mix zone which is where the journalists come and stick a sort of fluffy microphone in your in your face and mm-hmm. This lady from the BBC comes up to me. She goes, well, how do you feel? <laughs> and, I, and I sort of stood there for a moment, sort of contemplating the sweat, blood and tears I'd shed in the, the past four years. And I said to her, imagine your partner sleeping with your best friend. Now put that into words. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, she kind of scuttled away, and uh, <laughs> I, was, I was watching the highlight show later on on the BBC, and uh, and, and Claire Balding was interviewing this lady. Uh, was sorry, Claire Balding was was presenting the show, and she said to to the to the viewers, "Unfortunately, we we don't have an interview from from Darren Harris because he uh, walked out of his interview." Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> that was it. But it's so difficult to find the right words in the moment, you know, when you put so much into something. But in reflection, I'm absolutely delighted with everything I've, I've achieved in my career. You know, I, I did go back to football uh, literally just before London 2012. So I, I went to London 2012 as a footballer as well. And obviously football was what I've done most of my career. Judo was almost a, a sabbatical, I call it. But taught me an awful lot about life. Now, you've had quite a, a, a prestigious career as a, a footballer, blind footballer. Yeah, well, I'm, I am my most capped player of all time. Um, so I played for England 162 times between 1996 and 2019. I finished last year at the European Championships and, and I've won sort of 10 World and European medals in that in that time. So it's been a very successful career. But funny enough, the medals meant less and less as, as, as my career went on. You know, that first one was probably the most exciting for me but I think what you what you what you learn is that it's not really about the medals because we don't all start at the same place in life we don't all have the same chances in life and I remember going on the tour bus after London 2012 where we went on this open top bus tour around London and I think nearly a million people came out to sort of cheer on everybody and and it was the same after Beijing and I remember someone from the street kind of asking asking you know what sport do you do and at the time I was I said oh I did judo and they said are you guys going to win any medals and I thought okay <laughs> I thought should I jump off the bus and just throw it onto the hard concrete and see if he's still got a question for me but I I, I bit my tongue but what I realized is that people will always judge you based on what you've achieved you know if i if i told people that i'd won you know 20 gold medals they'd think oh wow that's even more impressive than the person who's won 
two medals, but if we didn't all start at the same place, if we didn't all have the same opportunities, I knew in my heart and heart that there was no, that the people who'd won those gold medals, they didn't train any harder than me. They just had better opportunities. They probably had better coaching. They probably had better access to facilities. And, and that's okay. Cause that's, that's life. You know, I, I did maths at university and I know a lot of people who struggle with maths, but I know that when I was a kid, when I came home from school, while I was at primary school, my mum used to sit down with me and, and give me extra maths lessons. And I think that's given me a massive advantage over those people who didn't get that. So I think we all so, respect you know, so, our place in life, where we come from. That's so, so very true what you're saying. I'm sitting here as an interviewer going, there are so many different paths that I would love to go down in this this interview now because you've, you've shared so much with us and so much I think that's really important but I'm mindful of the fact that this is a podcast about travel <laughs> so maybe I should reel myself back in mm. and shift our focus and back onto this this concept of travel mm. so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the travels you've done you obviously have done a fair amount of travels in your sporting career and I think it must have taken you to quite a few interesting places. So maybe you can share a little bit with us about where you've travelled to? Well, I've been to over 40 countries around the world, firstly. That's a, wow. that's a lot of places. And, and some of those places multiple times. I mean, I've been to Brazil six times, I think. I've been to Japan five times. So, yeah, I've, I've been to, you know, the, the only part of the world I haven't really been to is is the Southern Hemisphere. I haven't done a lot. I haven't been to Australia or, or New Zealand and I haven't been to South Africa, which is why I was so excited to come out and speak at your conference. But yeah, I've been to Japan and China and, and South Korea. I've been to Argentina and Brazil and Mexico and Belize and Honduras and Canada, the USA and Russia and a lot of the other countries within, within Europe you know Hungary Germany Austria the list is endless been to all sorts of places that must have given you some rather interesting experiences as you've traveled yeah so I think the thing I get most out about traveling is is the culture really just learning how how different people live some of the foods I I remember going to the, the Czech Republic um actually no it wasn't a chat it was lithuania actually we had a we had a tournament in lithuania and they served us this food and it was sort of this rye bread which is this black bread which is really strong and these and these beans and this cabbage stuff and it was absolutely disgusting <laughs> and i remember sort of complaining to our to our kind of coach and you know i'm not a person who eats fast food, I, I would never go to McDonald's. But at that moment, I was desperate for just some burger and chips, some some familiarity that I knew. So that's one of the things when you when you go abroad, you don't know what you're going to get sometimes. Different countries eat different things and you don't always have the opportunity to uh, visit you know, a local takeaway or, or restaurant to have some some familiar food. So that's one of the things. I remember going to Canada. I went to Quebec, actually, which is the French-speaking part of Canada. And one of the interesting things there was that it's a, it's a very proud nation. And, and, and pretty much every country I've been to in the world where English isn't their first language, they're dying to speak English. You know, it's a chance for them to practice their English skills and, and say, you know, can you understand me? They're really excited. But when I went to Quebec... They refused. They didn't want to speak English. I remember going to a, a, a food shop and, you know, they could speak English, but they chose not to. And so I really had to <laughs> remember a little bit of French that I'd learned at school just to get by. So that was one thing you, you discover that some countries are very proud around their language. Absolutely. And yes, I mean, you, you've detailed two things that I think are very marked for us as people with visual impairments we, we notice the food because it's so much a part of our integration with the culture and as you say language as well culture is so important and I think we are very aware of it when we travel through using our other senses 
So let's talk a little bit then about the logistics of how you travel when you're outside your familiar environment. What are the things that kind of play a role in how you engage with a new place? I was very fortunate that I've got a mother that always encouraged me to get out and about. So I I had retinoblastoma as a child and as I got older my sight got worse. So you know, going through my early teens, I still had some vision, but you know, I would eventually lose all my sight. But I remember when I was about 16, I got the train back to uh, Wolverhampton, which is in the middle of England. I call it the centre of the universe. And uh, <laughs> I rang up my mum and said, oh, you're going to pick me up from the train station. She goes, well, you know, you know where the bus stop is. I know I showed you it last week. And I think that in, it, in itself gave me the confidence to do something like travel on my own, travel independently. And, you know, I know a lot of blind people that don't travel on their own because of that fear. And the only way that fear goes is because someone gives you the confidence to do it. And, and I think I did it once. I got home and I was okay. And and I thought, well, where else can I travel? You know, and I remember going up to, to Scotland. I did a, an outward bound course for a couple of weeks. And it was a sort of a four hour train journey and I had to make a couple of changes and I was 16 when I did that and I did that on my own and I think that was the first time that you know I just started traveling around on my own quite regularly and and I think that stayed with me throughout my life but I suppose it hasn't been without its challenges and I I think um a couple of stories I can remember one one was a, a taxi story so there was a I was I remember getting back to the train station it was quite late in the evening actually it was, it was about midnight and there was I'm not sure why but there was a massive queue for these taxis and there didn't seem to be very many taxis about and the, and so people just started getting together in little groups and just saying well you know where do you live where do you live where do you live and we just sort of grouped people together and so there was five of us we got into this into this black cab which sort of seats five people and we dropped the first person off. They gave a couple of pounds and then the next person got dropped off and they put in a couple of pounds and I was the last person. So I had about 10 pounds on me. Uh, and uh, But the taxi fare was probably about eight pounds. So I just gave I just gave him what was what was on the meter and the taxi driver got really angry with me and uh, and wouldn't let me out. And <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and basically, he had a massive row, and then I heard the central locking click, and he just sped back to the middle of town and said, "Right, you can just get out here." So, <laughs> and but the scary bit about <gasps> it was, I was I didn't know where I was. This was quite a long time ago. This is in the nineties, so this was before everyone had mobile phones and you know, yeah. you'd put a sat nav on your phone and work out where you were. And I literally had to kind of. Uh, just use my my communication skills and my charm to get someone to help me to find a, t- a telephone box and basically ring up and order another taxi and and I eventually got home. But yeah, that 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 was pretty uh pretty stressful. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, wow. <laughs> I had another incident on on a tram. So we 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 a few cities in the UK have got uh, got trams now which uh, I don't know what you'd call them, really, sort of like a, a bus on, on rails, really. And But I went to university in Sheffield, and Sheffield had the student, uh, the World Student Games the year before I went to that university. So it had a lot of development. It built Don Valley Stadium, which was a sports stadium, Ponish Ford, which was a big swimming pool. And the tram system came as part of that. And so I used to travel into town on the tram. And... One of the challenges was that you couldn't find the, the buttons to open the doors. So I remember ringing up the, the council and saying, you know, you know, can they put some labels on it, some stickers, some, some tactile thing on, on the door so that we can find them. And, and, and the person I spoke to says, well, you know, can't your helper do that for you? <laughs> at, which, at which point I had to respond that I didn't have a helper and that there were blind people out there that did travel on their own so again it was uh you pun no pun intended an eye-opener for for some of the people that that we we interact with because they they don't expect blind people to be traveling on their own and so they don't often 
have us in mind when they're developing and planning some of the, the things that they do. I think increasingly people are becoming more aware, but yeah, we still do get that quite a lot mm. that people, and, and often it's because they don't understand how we do think things we do. So they don't know what adjustments and accommodations they need to put in place. Just simple things that would make it so much easier for us. Yeah, um, I mean, our train yeah. system is really good over here. So we, you can get assistance. You can, you can plan your, your journeys in advance and you can ring up and you can say, right, I'm going to be getting on this train tomorrow. And, uh, and then they can make sure that when you get to the connecting station that there'll be someone waiting for you, etc. Now, where that breaks down is when there's a change of plan or, you know, maybe you, you miss that train for some reason, you know, because there's been an accident on the road whilst getting to the station, or maybe there's been some delays. Uh, and so you sometimes do end up somewhere where there isn't any assistance. And so you, you do have to have that ability to, to just open your mouth and, and ask for help when you need it. Uh, in fact, the only time I've ever got on the wrong train is actually when I've got assistance. (laughs) (laughs) There must be another story there. (laughs) Well, you you always get well-meaning people who come up to you and say, oh, you you need a hand. I said, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm off to Birmingham. And and, and they put you on the train and stuff. And and I remember being on this train and and hearing all these accents and thinking, there's a lot of northern sounding accents on here. And then I heard next stop Sheffield, which, which is the complete opposite direction to where I was going. So oh my word. that person cost me about two hours of my time, but, <laughs> but it serves a purpose for today. And gave you an excellent opportunity to practice your problem solving skills. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier about the, the situation when you were in the taxi cab who mm. wouldn't let you out. Logistics, um, apps. Are you using any technology or apps when you travel to help get around and and do the things that you want to do? So one of the things I do now, because you don't always trust taxi drivers. I mean, one of the things, and if you're if you're if you're an Uber user, then then taxis can either take you the shortest route or they can take you the quickest route. Now the quickest route will often mean going on a motorway. But that will probably be, be longer. Uh, it would be, be so it'll be a longer distance. So it can sometimes cost you more money, even if it's going to get you there in a similar amount of time. So I always have my my uh, my sat nav on my phone when I'm in when I'm in a car, so that I know that they're taking me the route that I want to go, and just so mm-hmm. that I know I'm going to be charged what I'm expecting to be charged. Uh, and that's not, you know, that's something that someone who could see could just look out the window and says, oh, you know, can you take a left here, please? Or, you know, can you just go straight with the roundabout? But, you know, I'm sitting there in the car in, and, and just sort of kind of tracking our progress. So, so yeah, that's that's something I, I do as a matter of course every time. I'm and which, which particular GPS app are you using? I just use, I just use Google Maps. Yeah, I, I just follow that and I find that it's, it's, pretty good for what for what i for what i need some sometimes it 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 doesn't refresh as quick as i would like and there are sometimes and i don't know if it's a bug with it or not but sometimes it says when i'm walking with it it says i've arrived at my destination when i'm not at my destination (laughs) oh there is um yes there is there's a lot of roundabouts here in the uk and there's a there's a there's a roundabout in the middle of Birmingham called called Five Ways. So as you can imagine, it's got five very large roads going into this uh, roundabout. And so you can't walk across this roundabout. It's got underpasses to get, you know, across the the, the network of roads. And one thing is I do find is that my my sat nav isn't particularly accurate at getting me through that underpass. I've I've had to just learn it. I've just had to through walking it numerous times and getting lost numerous times to kind of nail it down. And, uh, you know, there are, there are definitely limitations to the technology, but on the whole, if I think back to when I was younger, literally I would have been completely relied on someone. And at least now I can do, I would say 95% of it on my own. In fact, when I moved, when I moved house and I moved to this area, 
that was the thing I used most was, was you know, was Google Maps. I mean, I could just literally go for a walk around the neighborhood, work out, you know, if I went down this road where it came out and if I took this road where it'd come out and literally just trying to build up that map in my head of where everything was. Um, and it's also helped me, funny enough, I hadn't really thought about this until now, but when it snows. So <laughs> the snow's a nightmare for, uh, for, for cane users. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't use a guide dog, so I, I use a long cane. And where I live, we've got really open gardens. Like there's the, the gardens at the front just open out to the road. So when the snow goes above the pavement, I couldn't tell you if I was in the road, if I was on the pavement or in somebody's garden. And and so the sound, the acoustics completely changes with the snow. You're yeah. completely disoriented and lost. And my sat-nav actually helps me, you know, because it can take me to the exact door. So, or within a couple of doors at least, so I can narrow it down. So that's another time when it's helped ma- massively. It, it's amazing. I think the, the number of things that we can do that... Yes, we could do without the technology, but technology just helps make it that little bit easier for us. And I, I think it's, I always enjoy asking this particular question when I'm interviewing people because it's just to really underline the role that technology can play in helping us be more independent. Yeah, and there, there's, there are loads of apps out there. And you know, I know people that use other other apps and you know, people use like the wayfinder and all sorts of things there's there's so much technology out there there, there, are, there are long canes now which you've got sort of built-in technology now which you're gonna kind of detect various objects in 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 real time rather than you just finding it with your cane uh so try different stuff out i would say if you haven't tried anything out uh, go and go and discover what there is out there but you know, there are, there are times when, you know, your cane doesn't find everything. So the, the classic one is, you know, those those overhead signs that you discover where you, your, your cane goes underneath the, underneath the sign, but the sign's still there. <laughs> you get a, get a little clunk. As, as you encounter. Yeah. <laughs> you get a little clunk on the side oh. of the head. <laughs> I've had a similar situation with a guide dog who, because guide dogs don't necessarily look up mm. and she walked me into a low-hanging branch. Yeah. But that's just life is a contact sport let's just put it that way (laughs) okay darren you've already shared a number of stories with us of experiences you've had when traveling but in previous conversations you mentioned a couple of really interesting experiences you had when traveling by air (laughs) would you care to share some of those stories with us so many years ago, I, mean, I do have a, a reputation for, for timekeeping. I, I, I've been late on, on several occasions. I've actually missed four flights in my life, but I have flown hundreds of times. So probably the percentage is, is, is relatively low. But there was, there was one morning where I was flying out to Salzburg, which is in Austria, for a, a training camp with judo. And uh, it was it was January. It was snowing. Um, my partner at the time she'd offered to to drive me to the train station, but the car wouldn't start because it was so cold. Basically, so I had to order a taxi. And so by the time the taxi came, I'd missed the first train to to London. And then when I was on the train, the train broke down, and. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we had to get off that train and get on the next train so now I was an hour behind schedule and then I got into London I was carrying two massive bags because we were going for a training camp so I had about 40 kilos of baggage on me and then I had to travel across London on the tube on my own and one of the things about London is that it's so busy one of the techniques I've learned to get on the tubes is that it's it, it comes across as less rude if you turn backwards and sort of reverse into a train because you're pushing someone with your bag rather than with your hand. <laughs> and because we're not dependent on our sight, we can be omnidirectional. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of squeezed my way into this train, but I eventually got to Stansted Airport, which was uh, which is 
the east of England and I was traveling from Bath, which was in the west of England. And, uh, and I literally missed my flight to Salzburg. And I remember going to the, the check-in desk and saying, um, yeah, just missed my flight. Uh, and she says, oh, where have you come from? I said, oh, you know, from Bristol. And she goes, oh, you do know you can fly to Salzburg from Bristol. And I said, oh, I said, yes, but uh, the teams, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the performance director and the head coach, he wants us all to fly together as a team. But the irony is that they didn't wait for me anyway. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, so basically, I'm in the airport now. There's six hours to the next flight. And I've basically got to wait for six hours on my own. And and that has its challenges because I haven't prearranged any assistance or anything like that. And I literally had to just sort of make my own way, just again, using my mouth. And, you know, if I needed the toilet, I'd have to just go up to someone and said, you know, can you show me where the gents is? If I needed a cafe, I'd have to ask someone, you know, can you show me, you know, tell me what restaurants are around. I can go and get some food. I had to just ask constantly for everything. And one of the things you do when you've got lots of time on your hand is, you know, you get bored and you start speaking to people on the phone. And before I realized it, my battery was running flat and I had no access to a plug or anything. And so I got on the plane and I suddenly realized I don't know what's going to happen when I land in, in Salzburg, you know, is is there going to be someone at the airport to meet me? Have I got to make my own way to this uh, place up in the mountains where we go in a place called Rauris, which is a ski resort. And so I landed in, in Salzburg and I went and stood by the sort of the gate or picked up my bag. I went and stood there and I stood there for probably 20 minutes to half an hour and nothing happened. My battery was completely flat and <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do. So I, Mr. Resourceful that I am, I just got on a train and travelled about an hour and a half up into the mountains and, and and found where I was going. And I didn't speak very good German, but I knew basics and they had broken English. And just by persistence and patience and faith, I, <laughs> I arrived and and then when I got there, it was like panic stations. I said, oh, we've sent a driver to the airport and they can't find you. And there's oh, no. <laughs> a search party across the whole of Austria. And um, <laughs> so I was in, I was in uh, my coach's sort of bad book. And I remember when I got back to the UK, I, I was called down to to the head office for, for a meeting. And they said, you know, Darren, we really need to sort this out. You know, what that what happened there is, is not acceptable, et cetera. And they said to me, so I said to them, well, yes, I know I've got a reputation for being late, but how early would I have had to leave? And it was one of these really open-ended questions. It's a little bit like, you know, if you're if you're stuck on a train for four hours and it breaks down, you, you sometimes you just have yeah. to say, well, you know, there's nothing I could have done in that situation. And, and that's what it was in this situation. There had been times in the past where it was definitely my fault, but on this occasion, it really wasn't. And um, so when I kind of asked that question, well, how much early you know, would I have had to leave to, to get there? And they, they couldn't really answer it. So we, we, uh, we, we kissed and made up, but <laughs> that was <laughs> quite an experience. It sounds like it. And it really sounds like it was a, an, an instance of one thing happening on top of another. So... Mm, yeah, rather you than me, I'm afraid. <laughs> I think you probably came through it a lot better than I would have. Um, so let's talk about some positive stories. What is your favourite travel experience that you've had? Well, I think um, I, I always love. I just actually when I, I, I did a talk in um, the Czech Republic and and whether I was being introduced to go and speak, they just said, you know he's traveled here on his own. You know, we literally, he flew in and we picked him up from the airport. Here he is. And that just blew people's mind in, in the audience. They'd, they'd never met someone who was blind. They didn't know that blind people traveled on their own. And just that experience of seeing that, that had really transformed the way people saw other blind people, made it a, a, a magical trip. And that's happened on numerous occasions where people 
they just don't realise that's what you do. I mean, I, I'd say most of the time, most of my travel experiences have been have been positive. We we went to Japan last year, and I remember our flight was delayed for six hours. And usually, with my teammates, you know, that would have been a, a challenge for us because you know we'd, we'd had some difficult times and you have a lot of arguments. And when you've been away with, with the same group of people for for sort of ten days you can fall out of love with each other. I'm sure people who are in lockdown at the moment will have experienced that. Like, even if you, you love your family and you get on with, with them, seeing them 24-7 can be really challenging. And, and that's what sport's like. You are in the bunker with someone for that length of period of time. And, and uh, so, but I remember sitting in, in, in that airport in, in Tokyo and, we just had a whale of a time. We just, you know, we played cards. We, we had quiz questions and we just had a lot of fun. And the, the six hours flew by. And I just think if you're, if you're doing stuff that you enjoy, then you don't even notice the time. And that's the same for some of the long flights. You know, when I first flew to Argentina, it, it was a 17 hour, 17 hour flight. And we, we flew to Rio and we landed in Rio and they, they, brought some more passengers on they refueled but we never got off the plane <laughs> and uh, and then we sort of flew another five hours to, to Argentina now you can fly 14 hours direct which I was going to say it's not too bad it's not great but you know <laughs> but you do you know you, it's finding stuff to do the, the in-flight entertainment's a lot better now yeah. it's, again it's not accessible yet you know we, we need to sort of challenge the airlines to, to, to do something about that to make sure that you don't always have to call a member of staff to come and put whatever film that you want on but there's stuff with audio description on it now so that yeah just even the in-flight entertainment is is improved as well so i just feel people's experiences will be so much better now than you know what we went through 20 years ago so true so, Darren, just a slightly different shift away. Um, if you go, well, if you were to go to speak to a service provider in the tourism, the hospitality industry, and suggest some changes that they might make to make their services more accessible to us as blind and visually impaired travelers, what kind of suggestions would you give them? I'd say get a blind person in to. To, to 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 map it all out i uh, <laughs> when i when i went to university they they offered me a what's on at university so oh, you know we can print out this in braille you know what's on at university and i said well what would be really more important for me is, is my textbooks in braille <laughs> 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 or they do stuff like my, my friend's a dentist and he said oh he was told he had to put these signs up these these brow signs on on the doors and on the walls of say but i said nobody walks around feeling the walls hoping that there's going to be some brow sign on there so sometimes they they put some of these things in place that are not really of any practical use because if you don't know something's there you're not going to look for it and and so so my advice would be to them is that is, is to consult an expert you know either a company that that deals with that specifically or or speak to to real blind people and and <laughs> and say how can we make how can we make this service more accessible whether it's putting down tactile markings japan's an extraordinary country for this you know when i first went to japan in 2001 and I think even as far back as then, they had these sort of tactile markings on the floors, and so you knew where the steps were, where you knew where, mm. you know, if you if you're in a big open concourse, Birmingham New Street, which is my local station, they've revamped that, and it's massive now. It's almost like being in an airport concourse. So it's it's this massive, wide open space. And you can get really lost in there because it's so open and the sound echoes of all sorts of things. And it's really difficult to know if you're walking in a straight line. So putting down some some tactile markings, putting down some 
different materials so that you know you know oh this bit's of area is a bit matted this bit's a bit shiny there are there are simple things that that they can do to help people but they'll never know i mean i'm still pointing out to people when i'm walking down the street with them that there's bubbles by by you know where there's a crossing or they don't they didn't even know they were there they said oh i did i want i've, I've said i've seen them before but i never knew you knew what they were for <laughs> <laughs> and and to be to be fair why should they mm, absolutely and it really is only through contact with someone like you who's willing to explain that it's suddenly to make a subtle pun puts things in a different perspective absolutely so, i mean you get yeah. you get in menus lots of restaurants now are having their menus in braille that's that's quite common now i went to stonehenge recently oh. and they had audio descriptions so a lot of the national national sort of monuments and history sites will have audio described um things that you can either download onto your phone so that when you walk around the various things, it will, you know, it'll say, you know, what happened at this particular point. So we'll read out whatever's written on things. So, mm-hmm. so that's quite common practice now. I suppose the challenge is for, for private companies where they don't have to, to a certain degree, because, you know, we have this thing around reasonable adjustments and that's, 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 a really open debate so companies we we have a law in this country we have equality act 2010 we also have the disability discrimination act 1995 and they both talk about reasonable adjustments and and but it's it's under debate what is a reasonable adjustment so (laughs) you know if you and and that's sometimes down to the digression and it it depends on the size of the organization and the number of people that are going to access that facility and whether it's affordable for whether the you know the ends justify the means, whether it's there's a real benefit to enough people for them to justify the cost, and and so it's just trying to tap into people's sometimes goodwill and just say you know what that's a good thing to do, that's the right thing to do. Yeah. Going back to where I started, that's how you can be a, a minority in your industry. You know, you can set the standard for others to follow. Absolutely true. So, Darren, that we've, we've been all over the place in this conversation, which has been fantastic. And there may well be people, when they listen to this, who say, I'd like to hear more. I'd like to find out more about Darren, about his work, maybe ask him to come and speak. Where can people contact you? I'm on all the social media channels, well, most of them. I even have an Instagram account. Well, I don't use it an awful lot. But uh, yeah, at, at Darren Harris GB is my social media uh, handle for, for Twitter and LinkedIn mainly. Uh, and also my website, which is DarrenHarrisGB.com. So always happy to talk to anyone. And yeah, if I can help you in any way, get in touch. Fantastic. So my final question for you today. I've realized that a lot of people who are visually impaired are nervous about traveling. They're they're nervous about moving out of their comfort zone and going out and experiencing this crazy, wonderful, changing world in which we live. What advice would you give to people to inspire them to get out and travel? It's a big, wide world. And uh, I, I feel that we owe it to ourselves and owe it to our friends and our family to to really experience the world for what it is and you know there are there are difficulties out there and there are challenges but that's ultimately how we learn and we grow and we develop and and I think once you start doing it you'll get the bug and you'll want to do it more so yeah go and experience the world Wonderful. Darren, thank you so much for joining us on A Different Way of Travelling today. It's been a real pleasure to chat to you. Thanks, Lois. I enjoyed chatting to Darren and hearing some of his stories. Okay, that's about it from me, your host, Lois Strachan. But before I go, 
I'd like to remind you that if you are a service provider in the travel or hospitality industry in Cape Town, that it's currently free to list on the Accessible South Africa website. If you'd like to find out more and share your services with travelers with disabilities, hop onto our website at www.accessiblesouthafrica.co.za and you'll find more about the listings on the homepage. I'm going to leave you with today's travel quote. It's from British poet T.S. Eliot, who said, The journey, not the arrival, matters. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you again next time. That's it from us for this time. You can find Accessible South Africa on the web at accessiblesouthafrica.co.za on Facebook and Instagram at Accessible South Africa and on Twitter at Accessible SA. You can also email us at podcast at accessiblesouthafrica.co.za Editing by Craig Stratton using Hinderberg software. Our theme music is by Lu Chil Chow, based on a motive by Lord Stratton. Credits read by Musa E. Zulu. Thank you for joining us on A Different Way of Traveling. We'll see you next time. Until then, happy travels.